Did anyone ever have a bad experience in middle school? You know, you're just trying to fit in, just trying to belong. You just want to have friends and be part of a group. But so many times you ended up getting excluded. You didn't get invited to the birthday party. Your friends, people that you thought were your friends, didn't save you a seat at lunch. And we all remember the pain of feeling left out. And for most of us, middle school was a long time ago, and we still carry the wounds. Now let's flip that. Have any of us ever consciously excluded someone in middle school or otherwise? That's probably universal too. In the neighborhood Megan and I used to live in, we had a group of friends. We all raised our kids together. We hung out at least once every weekend. And there was this one couple, they were a lot of work. And we wanted to have our friends over and we thought that this couple was going to be out of town. So we had all of our friends over and the other couple came home early. Did I mention that they lived right across the street from us? So they come home and all of our friends' cars are at our house. We were obviously having a party and they hadn't been invited. And they did something I had never seen them do before. Hand in hand, they went for a walk up and down the street in front of our house, back and forth, so that we could see that they knew that they weren't invited. They felt excluded. And they were, but there they were, out in front of the house, so we invited them in. And right away, this kind of brings up where we're going to go today. None of us likes to be excluded, but sometimes we exclude other people. And this becomes a real problem when we're talking about excluding people from the good news of Jesus. In the second of our sermon series on Galatians, in all honesty, we're going to look at how consistent we are. So we're looking kind of verse by verse through Galatians 2, 11 through 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So who is Cephas? You actually know him by another name or two. He starts out being Simon Bar-Jonah, but then he has this encounter with Jesus and Jesus gives him a job and a nickname. It's in Matthew 16. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now rock in Greek is Peter. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. So Simon, Simon, Peter, Cephas, they're all the same person. Now this is the second conflict that we've looked at recently. Paul and Barnabas over John Mark, and now Paul and Peter. Notice that Paul is involved in both. So is Paul just difficult? Well, in a word, yes. I always say I don't think Paul ever got invited back to dinner. But there's more than that. The Bible doesn't show us a neat, clean, sanitized story. It shows us a messy story. It shows us a real story. These are all people with growth edges. They make mistakes, they grow, and they develop as they follow Jesus. And I think that helps invite us into the story because our lives are messy. They aren't perfect. We have growth edges. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he, Cephas, used to eat with the Gentiles. All right, who is James? Well, James is the brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And Jerusalem, this is where it all started, right? So they're probably pretty conservative. They see themselves as guardians of the tradition, as the arbiters of orthodoxy, and that's fair. 
And these people come as a delegation from the mother church. Now, Paul is out in the Wild West a bit with people who aren't Jewish. That's what a Gentile is. And things are a little bit different out there. For the people in Jerusalem, they're already Jewish. They start to follow Jesus, no issues. But these other people who are coming to Christ, they aren't Jewish. And if salvation comes through the Jews, then don't you have to be Jewish before you can be a Christian? Now, Peter gets out a little bit more than the other Jewish Christians did. And when he started to mingle with non-Jewish Christians, it was a pretty steep learning curve for him too. God had to give him a vision to convince him that it was okay to hang out with the Gentiles. For Peter, it was a big deal to finally figure out that following Jesus was about freedom, not about following the Mosaic law. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't right and wrong, no ethic or morality, or that following Jesus shouldn't change a person's behavior. Paul writes, shall we continue sinning so that grace might abound in Romans 6? And the answer is a resounding no. But just because you do certain things doesn't mean you're following Jesus. And doing certain things and not other things won't save you. In other words, you can't earn your way to heaven. I think everyone would have agreed to this, in principle anyway. But there's this tension that still exists between the two groups. So why is this current situation a big deal? Well, sharing a meal means something. You don't invite people you don't approve of over for dinner, except Thanksgiving, but they're relatives and you just have to because your grandma will never forgive you if you don't. So Peter has been there for a while with Paul and this group of Gentile Christians, and he's been having dinner with everybody, which means he's holding the food laws a little loosely. Now, does this mean he's having bacon for breakfast? No, probably not. But he's not judging those who do. And it's probably more a matter of eating idols, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, because it's kind of tough to find a kosher butcher. So they've been one big happy family, all having dinner together, all doing life together. But then, the rest of verse 12. But when they arrived, the men from James, he, Cephas, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The circumcision group is another not particularly complimentary way of referring to Jewish Christians and the people from James. So his old friends come to visit. And Peter thinks, what will they think if they find me having dinner with a bunch of Gentiles? Oh, do I know that's what he said? No. No, I don't, but I have a sneaking suspicion. And what does that reveal? A bunch of Gentiles? Them. They aren't us, at least not in the way that we are us. And now are you beginning to suspect what the problem is here? Let's keep going. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Let's think about being a hypocrite for a minute. A hypocrite, a hypocrite pretends to be something they aren't, being one thing around one group of people and one thing around another. Now, that's not necessarily bad. There can be some relationship context. I'm not the same way around my closest friends as I am around work. I'm different when I'm with my kids or with my family, but fundamentally, I'm the same person. In fact, sometimes it's even important to be different in different contexts. 
In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So sometimes being different with different people is just fine, but not here in this story. It was more than Peter was wrong or inconsistent. He was perverting the gospel. He was mixing conversion to Christ with conversion to nationalistic Judaism. What does that mean? In order to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be a Jew first. And that's why Paul needed to confront Peter. For Jewish people and for the majority of Jewish Christians, circumcision and dietary laws were really important. They would say, this marks us as different. God's called us to be separate from the culture. If we give these things up, we'll be just like everyone else. And there's some pain around that. They were brought up that behaving in a certain way was how you please God. But now Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life, shown us what God looks like, died on the cross, raised from the grave on the third day, broke the power of sin and death in the universe and in our individual lives, and paved a way for us to return to God. So now you don't need to win God's approval or his love. He's already taken care of that. But old habits die hard. So people were like, we love Jesus, but certainly we still shouldn't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That's wrong and would give other people the wrong impression. But see the implication? Real Christians love Jesus and don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. The potential is there that you've raised not eating meat to the same level as Jesus's crucifixion. Are there some modern parallels? I think of smoking versus drinking. This really came up into focus for me at one point. Where I grew up in Los Angeles, very few Christians smoked cigarettes. It was sort of frowned on. But almost everyone drank beer or wine. Nobody even thought about it. And then Megan and I moved to New York. And I was really shocked to see people standing around outside church smoking cigarettes. And the very same people felt strongly that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. I even heard a sermon there one time on how the invention of Tums meant that Paul's advice to Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach was no longer valid. So who's right? The Californians who don't smoke but drink or the New Yorkers who smoke but don't drink? I don't know. It's a matter of opinion. I'm neither for nor against drinking. But drinking or not drinking is not a prerequisite for salvation. But let's go down this road further. A good friend of mine who lives somewhere far away, who is a serious Jesus follower, was telling me recently about some friends of theirs who are also Jesus followers, found out that my friends have a different view on a divisive social issue than they do. So this couple came to my friend and his wife and said, because you do not agree with us on this issue, we cannot be friends with you anymore. And my friend was stunned. They've done life together, and now these people have cut them off. Because for this couple, unless you agree with their view of Christianity, they don't want to have a relationship with you. And they were willing to throw a relationship away. Let's go down this road a little further. The advice I give people that gets the most pushback is this. A couple comes to me and they say, we have a crisis. 
Our niece, nephew, is gay, and they're getting married. And we're invited to go to the wedding. But we're afraid that if we go, that will be condoning what they're doing. And this is what I say. Go out and buy them a nice gift, dance at the wedding, and have a good time. And they say, but if we do that, they'll think that we approve. And I say, they know you don't approve. But are you willing to cut off the relationship and have no chance to ever influence them for Christ? And do you know what the answer is most of the time? Actually, I would say all of the time when people who have asked me this question, the answer is, would rather take a firm stand, even if it breaks the relationship, than condones their behavior. Sigh. I'm so tired of being labeled things that I am not because other people who name the name of Christ have decided that certain things are on par with the gospel. I think there's been a tremendous danger and will continue to be a tremendous danger to be pushed that if you don't believe this way or vote this way, you can't be a Christian. There have always been differences of opinions. That's why there are so many different denominations. But there seems to be a new vehemence. This is what Christianity looks like. This is what Christianity stands for. Here at Harbor Covenant, at least as long as I am the pastor, we will not preach a particular view on social issues. We will not preach a particular political view. We will preach Christ crucified. We will preach that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. One of my friends who's a pastor in his church made yard signs that they all put up in their yards, because that's what you do with the yard sign. And the yard sign says, love everyone always. I love that. Lately, I've been saying, don't hate ever. As followers of Jesus, let's not hate anyone ever. Let's tell our elected officials not to hate, not to demonize. We're smart enough to tell when they're pandering to our basis instincts. I think Jesus calls us to be our best selves. Jesus calls us to see the true gospel and to live in it. We're called to the freedom of being able to love and accept people. But wait, aren't some things wrong? Well, yes, of course. But we don't want there to be any stumbling block between people and Jesus except the cross. And here's where the problem grows. This misunderstanding of what the gospel is, is spreading because Peter is bringing people with him. And Paul is incredulous because even Barnabas falls for this, which reminds us that we have influence over other people. One person can negatively or positively affect an entire room or a worship service. We used to have a person who sat in the worship service with their fingers in their ears the entire time. You don't think that had an effect on people? And then Paul goes on in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The most important word in the passage is the word forced. This wasn't optional. This wasn't, we can agree to disagree. This was, I'm going to hold you accountable to a standard I'm not really keeping myself. And I don't know of a better definition of a hypocrite than that. And what's at stake here? People and people's lives are at stake. 
How do you think the Gentile Christians felt when Peter quit eating with them? Wow, what did we do? He was only play-acting when he was interested in us. I thought we were part of this, but we're clearly second-class citizens. We'll never be part of the in-crowd. Peter and the crowd that he was developing stood in the way of people hearing the good news of Jesus. So what's the most important thing? Is it not keeping kosher? Oh, that'll raise an eyebrow for sure. Or is it reaching people for Christ and having them incorporated in the community? How many churches do you think are more interested in their equivalent of keeping kosher than they are of actually reaching people who are far away from God with the good news of the gospel? Church attendance and the number of people who call themselves Christian is in free fall in the United States. There's a huge rise of the nuns who never had faith and the duns who are tired of it. And just church people not coming back. Why? Any number of reasons. But in many instances, it's because we've lost our moorings. Because we've substituted cultural things for the gospel. Good Lord, there was a denomination in the news again this week. They've made headlines for sweeping sexual assault under the rug. And they just kicked out one of the biggest churches in the country because they departed from the gospel by having a woman on their pastoral staff. Jesus called us a peculiar people, but sometimes we just look crazy. And then Paul goes on to explain his reasoning. Verse 15, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Basically, we used to live under the law, under a certain behavior code, but it didn't bring us life. Only following Jesus wholeheartedly and adding nothing to his death and resurrection will bring us life. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I participate with him in his death so that I can participate with him in his resurrection. If we start setting up other hurdles, things people have to do in order to follow Jesus, then his sacrifice on the cross was for nothing, and we're back to earning our salvation. If it's Jesus plus anything, any social issue, any political view, any cultural value, if it's Jesus plus anything, then the words of Paul, Christ died for nothing. So how consistent are we? Are we asking people to follow standards that we ourselves can't keep? Do we rail against things that we do ourselves when no one else is looking? I read this line this week, and I think it's true. It's difficult to extend the type of grace that we have received to other people. We rejoice in God's grace to us, in God's forgiveness and his mercies. We're so grateful for the endless second chances that are ours because of the cross. We have a harder time extending that grace or believing that some other people can be included in that grace. 
A week or so ago, I posted on social media, there's a lot to be said for being a kind and decent person. I got a lot of great responses, but there were a number of people that I thought, I was talking about you. Your social media posts are filled with vitriol and hate. I don't know. Maybe we all need our ones to help point out how inconsistent we are. So let me ask you three questions. How would you finish this sentence? In order to follow Jesus, you have to... Two, how has God's grace impacted your life? And number three, who is someone that you have difficulty extending grace to and why? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.